today on The Open Word with Pastor David Landry. Open our hearts, change us from within by the open word. Give us ears to hear your truth and eyes to see the needs around us as we draw. just hang around you and listen to your wisdom for a while. That's the kind of man. God had blessed him so mightily and powerfully. And we've got to drive that into our heads and our understanding that it wasn't just a little blessing of God on Solomon. God blessed him in an overwhelming way. The problem was, along with his wisdom, he had this great appetite, an appetite to feed his ego an appetite to feed his flesh. And that continued to hunger for more and more and more. In today's message, Pastor David will share a word of caution from King Solomon's life. God had blessed Solomon mightily and powerfully. Despite the wisdom God had granted him, Solomon gave in to his fleshly desires. Giving in to these temptations brought great destruction in his life. Just because God gives you his blessings does not mean you are immune to the evil one. Bring all things to the Lord so that he may help you overcome fleshly desires. And here's Pastor David in the book of 1 Kings chapter 1 as he begins his message, Lust, Greed, Rebellion, and Destruction. Lust, greed, rebellion, and destruction in political places. Covering, covering a lot of territory, some of it we're gonna stop and look at some particular verses, but by and large, we're just gonna be taking big chunks out of this book. There's 22 chapters just in 1 Kings. If you put First and Second Kings together, they give us the record of pretty much the rise following David's kingdom, the rise and then the subsequent fall of not only uh, the Israel, but, but of both kingdoms. The, it, we speak of the divided kingdoms here as we get into First Kings. There's going to be the northern kingdom that's called Israel, and there's 10 tribes that are involved with that. Then there is the southern kingdom, and that's Judah, uh, and again, the tribe of Judah, and a little bit of uh, Benjamin is uh, thrown in there also. So you got these two main kingdoms that we're going to look at as we're going through First Kings. Uh, originally, First uh, and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings, they were actually one big book, and yet it was not then divided down, became a uh, First, second, third, and fourth kings at one point in time. Then they finally settled for first and second Samuel, first and second kings. And the only reason that they divide first and second kings where they do is simply because of the length of the scrolls that they had at that time. And I thought that was pretty interesting, uh, just looking at it. There is the break. We're going to see it tonight. But again, there's a lot more that's going on as we transition in to Second Kings. Now, as we open up the book of First Kings here in the first 
chapter, we actually get to the point, it's the end of King David's life. We looked at a little bit of his reign last week as we went through 2 Samuel. His life is done, his his reign is is done, and he calls for his son Solomon, uh, the second child actually that he had with Bathsheba, to become the uh, successor to the throne. We jump to the closing passages, actually, of 2 Kings, and we find the end of King Zedekiah's rule as Judah's last king, and then Judah is finally taken off into Babylonian captivity. So that's the range that we're covering. As a matter of fact, you can clearly divide the books of First and Second Kings into three different parts. The first main part is Solomon's rule. He expands the kingdom. He expands the size. He expands their wealth. He expands their power. It's a united kingdom at that one point. Solomon, the wisest man on earth, we're going to be looking at him a little bit, but we find out he's not real smart in a lot of things. There, he, does, he does some pretty foolish things in his life, particularly at the end of his life. Then the second main portion of First and Second Kings is that following Solomon, the, the arrogance and the failure of his son, Rehoboam, brings about this rebellion that uh, t- takes nearly all of the nation away from his rule, brings the 10 tribes up to the northern kingdom as the nation becomes divided. Again, the, the Judah remains with Rehoboam, but the rest of them go into the northern kingdom. That division remains until the northern kingdom falls to the Assyrians. And in essence, it's not like the southern kingdom. We're going to find as we read this, when the southern kingdom goes into captivity to Babylon, after 70 years, the, the Lord allows them to come back. The northern kingdom, taken by the Assyrians, they never come back. Uh, it's just totally an, annihilated. And some people say, well, that, that's the 10 lost tribes of Israel. But in reality, when you look at the scripture, we find out that there's uh, representatives or portions of people from each of those northern tribes that decided not to divide away from the southern kingdom. And they actually came from their tribes down into the area of Judah. So beloved, there are not 10 lost tribes. God's never lost a thing that he's ever had. And they are not lost. They are all part of Judaism. The third portion of First and Second Kings, if you join them together, really covers the balance of that southern kingdom until that final fall, the final captivity of Jerusalem and taken on into Babylon. Now, all of this time period actually covers only about four to 500 years. To help you see it clearly, and the death of David ends up being around 970 B.C., 970 B.C. First Kings ends and Second Kings begins at around 853 B.C. The northern kingdom falls to Assyria in 722. So from about, from, from 970 when David dies, to 722, that ends up being what? About 970 to 722. That's about 150 years, correct? Okay, so about 150 years. And then from there, we have the fall of uh, the southern kingdom, the fall of Jerusalem in 586 B, uh, yeah, BC. Now, again, because first and second kings 
they are definitely a great history lesson as we look at the history of Israel. But the greatest value I believe that we pull from this is learning all the mistakes that are found in the history of these two kingdoms. I mean, we, we, almost every page, every, every column, we see the leadership within both of these nations making absolutely foolish decisions, destructive decisions, and turning their backs on God who has preserved them all of these years. I mean, we, we, we see such great potential in so many of these, and yet it's lost because of the disobedience of both the leader as well as the people. And that's the thing that we need to grasp hold of. That again, when our leadership of our nation runs in disobedience to God and the nation, the people join with them in that disobedience, beloved, we're setting ourselves up for a crash and burn. Now, God through his grace may give us 300 years, 400 years. I don't know. But I, can't, I, I tell you, we cannot continue to be doing the things that we do as a nation and not expect the judgment of God on our nation. He did it with Israel, the nation that he pulled out of nothing, that he placed his name on, that so much is rich about Israel. Don't think that he would not do it with us. We see, again, the, the, this whole downfall comes really beginning with, with, with Solomon himself and Solomon's decision to take for himself 700 wives and 300 concubines. I mean, give me a break here, really? Uh, that many wives, that many concubines. That's like a, a major ego trip. That's a major power grab. And granted, some of those wives were in deals with, with surrounding countries. But I'll give you a clue here real quick there were not 700 countries around Israel, okay? So we see this guy, again, uh, getting all of these women around him. And if you don't think, guys, if you don't think your wives have some influence on you, you're fooling yourself. Hopefully your wife's influence is good influence because that's not what happened with Solomon. Solomon got these women and most all of them were pagan women. And in Solomon's old age, he was drawn right into the pagan worship. Not only was this foolish in practical sense of just, again, all that he gathered around him, but it destroyed him in a spiritual sense too. It destroyed the influence and the power of Solomon as well as brought the nation to a point of absolute and complete division because he was not able to pay attention to what was going on. His mind, his thoughts, I believe his attitudes and actions were elsewhere. Again, the opening verses of uh, 1 Kings, beginning with David on his deathbed, midst of the conflict uh, we, we've got going on right now, David's son, Adonijah, he tries to set himself up as the heir apparent. As a matter of fact, he even gives himself this uh, pre-coronation ball. He pulls all of his friends together, has a big barbecue, invites everybody over, they're all celebrating. Look here in verse five, chapter one of First uh, Kings. It says there in verse five, then Adonijah, the son of Haggith, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. And he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him. Now you gotta have to stop and say, okay, we know that David is at his deathbed at this point. He doesn't have a lot of strength. 
But this next little piece of information here that the scriptures give us tell us volumes about the failure of David as a father. Look at what it says there in verse six. And his father, which was David, his father had not rebuked him at any time saying, why have you done so? Let me stop right there. When he says at any time, I don't think he's talking about right now that he's getting the the chariots and these guys running. I think that throughout this guy's life, David was just hands off where he could have been a godly influence on these sons. Perhaps David in his own guilt from his own relationship with Bathsheba felt that he was nobody to give correction and direction to his sons. We don't know, but we do know that it's very clear that David had not rebuked him at any time by saying, why have you done so? And then we move on. We also find out that Adonijah was very good looking and his mother had borne him after Absalom. Then he conferred with Joab, the son of Zariah, and with Abathar, the priest, and they followed and they helped Adonijah. So he's pulling some political strength here right out from under his father's feet. And again, he's gathering together with him the priest, Joab, who is the commander of David's army, all of these to come and help him. Verse nine, drop down to there, verse nine. And Adonijah sacrificed sheep and oxen and fatted cattle at the stone of Zahalath which is by Enrogel. He also invited all of his brothers, the king's sons, and all of the men of Judah, the king's servants. But he did not invite Nathan, the prophet, Benaniah, the mighty man, or Solomon, his brother. Well, of course not. (laughs) He's pulling the rug right out from under. So he's making these secret alliances throughout the people of Israel at this point in time in order that when he rises up to be king, these guys are already on his side. So as as his father, as David, lies dying, Adonijah, just like his brother Absalom before him, he makes the rounds of these people, these influential leaders behind David's back, building up his own following, including most all of his brothers, the leader of his father's army, and a very influential priest at the time. All this is happening as it's happening. Nathan, the prophet, recognizes what's going on. He hears, he sees what's going on. And through, and actually, when you read this story, there's a little bit of trickery, a little bit of deceit here, but through a bit of trickery and with the assistance of Bathsheba, Nathan the prophet convinces David that he needs to very quickly anoint and crown Solomon as the king of Israel. Look down in verse 29, if you would. First Kings chapter one, beginning in verse 29. So David on his deathbed answered and said, call Bathsheba to me. And so she came into the king's presence, stood before the king. The king took an oath and said, as the Lord lives who has redeemed my life from every distress, just as I swore to you by the Lord God of Israel saying, assuredly Solomon, your son shall be king after me and he shall sit on my throne in my place. So I certainly will do this day. Then Bathsheba bowed her face to the earth and paid homage to the king and said, let my Lord King David live forever. 
Well, he didn't. Didn't live forever. Solomon, though, they were able to crown him as king. And once he's made king, Solomon does a little bit of house cleaning. He does that house cleaning by killing a number of people who had either come against him or his father. Others he sent into exile, never to be able to return to Israel again under penalty of death. And by the time we get over to chapter three, Solomon's reign seems to be very well established, taking on the role as the king of Israel. And it appears to be for him at that point in time, a very serious and a very God-led direction for him. We see in in his life some very powerful godly things going on. Look there in chapter three, beginning in verse five. We read, at Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night. And God said, ask, what shall I give you? Solomon said, you have shown great mercy to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in truth and righteousness and in uprightness of heart with you. You've continued this great kindness for him and you've given him a son to sit on his throne as it is today. Now, O Lord, my God, you have made your servant king instead of my father, David, but I'm a little child. I do not know how to go out or to come in. Let let me stop right here. Solomon was not a little child, but again, in the humility of his relationship with God, just humility speaking. And I, I don't believe it's false humility. I don't think he's trying to shine God on. I think that again, he knows, man, this is way, way beyond me. I've stepped into something way over my head. We get to verse eight. He says, and your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too numerous to be numbered or counted. Therefore, give to your servant an understanding heart to judge your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to judge this great people of yours? Verse 10 tells us that speech, that prayer, that response pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this thing. Then God said to him, because you've asked this thing and have not asked long life for yourself, nor to have riches for yourself, nor have you asked the life of your enemies, but you've asked for yourself understanding to discern justice. Behold, I've done according to your word. See, I've given you a wise and an understanding heart so that there has not been anyone like you before, nor shall any like you arise after you. And I've also given you what you've not asked, giving you riches and honor so that there shall not be anyone like you among the kings all your days. So, and there's the caveat. So, if you walk in my ways and keep my statutes and my commandments as your father David walked, I will lengthen your days. We see various situations in Solomon's life that this wisdom comes out very quickly. We read the story again of the, the two harlots that come to him. They, they both uh, lived together and they, they, they each had a, a baby. And one night, one of the women rolled over, suffocated her child. When she woke up, she saw that her child was dead. So she switched the child with the other one. When the other woman woke up, she realized, that's not my baby. Uh, the, the dead baby is not my baby. You've got my live baby. So finally, it came to Solomon. Solomon, his great witness, said, okay, well, just give me the living child. I'll split him down the middle and you can each have a half. Well, the woman whose child it was, it, it, it did not matter. So he said, sure, go ahead and do that. And so Solomon said, no. 
you're not the real mother because the real mother would never do that. Again, it seemed as though everything was working out really good for Solomon at this point in time. As a matter of fact, chapter four tells us that his great wisdom and his great influence continued to grow. Look at verse 29 of chapter four. God gave Solomon wisdom and exceedingly great understanding and largeness of heart like the sand on the seashore. The Solomon's wisdom excelled the wisdom of all the men of the East and all the wisdom of Egypt. You gotta understand that in Egypt, those, the whole culture down there, the wisdom, the intelligence, the understanding of all the things of the world in Egypt was tremendous. But now Solomon has excelled beyond them even. Verse 32 says that he spoke 3,000 proverbs and his songs were 1,005. Now, we don't have all of those here listed. In fact, a lot of those have been just just lost. But again, 3,000 proverbs, 1,005 songs. Also, he wrote or spoke of trees from the cedar tree of Lebanon, even to the hyssop that springs out of the wall. He, he was a botanist, so he, he could tell you all about the, the vegetation of the land. He also spoke about the animals, the birds, of creeping things, and of fish. He, he knew nature, and he was able to speak intelligently about these things. It says in verse 34, men of all nations from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom came to hear the wisdom of Solomon. They wanted to go to the University of Solomon for a couple of months. Let me just hang around you and listen to your wisdom for a while. That's the kind of man. God had blessed him so mightily and powerfully. And we've got to drive that into our heads and our understanding that it wasn't just a little blessing of God on Solomon. God blessed him in an overwhelming way. The problem was, along with his wisdom, he had this great appetite, an appetite to feed his ego, an appetite to feed his flesh. And that continued to hunger for more and more and more. And that's what brings us destruction. But before we get there, we find in chapters five through six, the beginning of the construction of the temple, as well as Solomon's palace, and just the beauty and the splendor. of Let's just scoot through some of these. Chapter six in, in verse one, he says, it was in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel in the month of Ziv, which is the second month, that he began to build the house of the Lord. So he's ready to go. Remember, David had been accumulating all the, the finances and the necessary things for it. And now Solomon is building it. Down in verse 11, Then the word of the Lord came to Solomon saying, hey, concerning this temple, which you're building, if you walk in my statutes, execute my judgments, keep all my commandments and walk in them, then I will perform my word with you, which I spoke to your father, David. And I will dwell among the children of Israel and will not forsake my people, Israel. And so Solomon built the temple and finished it. Then down in verse 38, and in the 11th year, in the month of Baal, which is the eighth month, the house was finished in all of its detail according to all of its plan. So he was seven years in building it. Of course, chapter seven tells us he spent 
13 years actually building his own houses, but it was seven years in building the temple. But he built more than one house. He built multiple houses all around the nation, as well as multiple houses. You got 700 wives, 300 concubines. You need a couple of houses. Okay. As our time with you today winds down, we'd like to share where you can listen to today's message again. You'll find this and other teachings from Pastor David and The Open Word at theopenword.com. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast to ensure you never miss an edition of the program. Right now, let's turn it back over to Pastor David for a quick message from the heart. Hello, friend. I'm so glad you joined in today to The Open Word. As you know, this broadcast is meant to share with you the hope, grace and love that can only be found through Jesus Christ. He's the reason I teach every week at Calvary Chapel of Casa Grande. I want as many people as possible to know and believe the message of the gospel. If you'd like to know more about what Jesus' life and death means to you, I'd encourage you to call us. We have some great people here who would love to pray with you and answer your questions. Our number is 520-836-9676. Again, that's 520-836-9676. Know that I'm praying for you, too, and I value you greatly as a listener and brother or sister in Christ. Thanks, Pastor David. We'd like to invite you to come see us in person as well at Calvary Chapel Casa Grande. We have services every Saturday, Sunday, and Wednesday, and you'll be able to find more information at theopenword.com. Just click the church link at the bottom of the page. With that, our time with you has come to an end. Join us next time to continue our journey through the Bible right here on The Open Word. Make us more.